1 John chapter 2. Tonight we're going to do verses 1 through 14. So next week we should finish up 1 John chapter 2. This is our second study. Last week we looked at chapter 1. We talked about John. He's known as John the Evangelist. This is John the son of Zebedee, not John the Baptist, obviously. Uh, John the Baptist was killed during the time of Jesus. And we looked at, you remember that story that we read from last time of the, uh, the young man who had been commissioned by John, uh, or the bishop was commissioned by John to raise up this young man to be a leader in the church. Uh, the guy who got into the wrong crowd became a bandit, basically, a, a chief of bandits, a gang leader, and how John ended up going out to this really dangerous place and personally pleading with this young man to be saved. And we saw how he's a, he was a man full of love, and he was also a man full of passion. Remember, this was John, one of the sons of thunder. So you see what the Lord did is the Lord took his passion. He didn't get rid of the passion, but he redirected it in the right way. And that's what the Lord loves to do with us. And we want to remember also, this is the same John who wrote 2nd and 3rd John and the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. So a lot of the cross-references we're going to look at tonight are from John uh, because it was written by the same guy and it helps us understand what he meant when he said a lot of different things. And just to recap what we went over last time, he began by giving his testimony of how he, remember, he heard, he saw, he handled the word of life, which is a name he gives to Jesus Christ. And he talks about how Christ came that we might have fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. And he continues by urging us to walk in the light. And he talks about how it's impossible for those who have fellowship with God to walk in continual sin. And we're going to actually hit that again a couple times in this section. Uh, as we said, First John kind of spirals in its themes. It doesn't really have a straight outline uh, like, for example, Paul's letters do. He's, he's pretty organized. John tends to ramble is the wrong word, but repeat himself. And uh, it's kind of a heavy message that he gives us, but he ended by reminding us in verse 9 that uh, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we repent. And we're going to go through that again tonight, how there's going to be some harsh instruction, but he's going to bring it back at the end. And uh, it, these are harsh passages in a way, um, and, but they're written to produce joy and perfection in us. They're not written to make us feel bad. And uh, because we're in fellowship with Christ, the victory is already ours. So while we want to walk in obedience, we want to walk in righteousness, uh, we don't earn our salvation that way. So uh, that, that's the good news. So tonight, uh, the title is called The Love of God Perfected in You. And that's a really cool idea that John just briefly touches on. I wish he would develop it more, but I think we can develop it a little more from uh, the rest of the scripture. So let's go ahead and start in chapter 2. With verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So these two verses are incredible. And honestly, I probably could have taught tonight just on these two verses. <laughs> but we need to move a little faster than that. Um, but I do want to make sure we take the time to get... He's got two great titles that he gives to Jesus here that uh, we need to make sure that we understand. And those two are Advocate and Propitiation. And we'll talk about both of those. So he opens by calling his readers Little Children. This is a very common way that John addressed people. He does it, I think, five or six times in this book alone. He calls them my little children. And so you can see how he's an older man now. He was called John the Elder at this point. He had paternal care for these people. Not only did he say, I love you, and that's why he called you children, but you know, if you're a father, you have responsibility for your children. So John is talking about, I love you, but I also am responsible for your soul. And that story where John reached out to that young man, not only was he his father in the sense of, I, I, I'm caring for you, but he saw it as his responsibility to make sure that that man walked with the Lord, and he certainly took it very seriously. So when he says, my little children, you, you get an idea of the heart behind that. And this is another one of the, uh, I believe, the five different places where John gives his reason for writing. The first one was in chapter 1, verse 4. He said, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This one is about obedience. So the first one is about joy. The second one is about obedience. And we're going to get to the really long one, actually, at the end of this study tonight. And he says, the purpose of this letter, he wrote these things so that you may not sin. 
Now, he's just coming off of chapter 1, this instruction about receiving the forgiveness when we do sin. So he's saying, you know, no one continues in sin, but if we do, we have forgiveness in Jesus Christ. But I'm writing this so that you don't sin. He's heading off the idea that since Jesus will forgive me, I can sin whenever I want, do whatever I want, and then I'll just come back and ask for forgiveness later. That is the sign of an unregenerate heart, John is saying. If you can have that attitude honestly and say, who cares if I sin, God will forgive me for it later, the love of God is not in you. You know, in the Old Testament, there was no sacrifice for intentional, willing sin. Like if you made a mistake or if you did it in a fit of anger or in the heat of the moment, that was fine. You had a, you had a sacrifice for you. But if you premeditated what you were going to do and then did it, there was no sacrifice for you. And the same thing applies even here in the New Testament. Uh, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Remember he had just said, uh, where, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. So then should I sin a bunch so that there's lots of grace in my life? He says, by no means. The Greek there is megenoita. And a good way to translate that would be, what are you, nuts? Are you crazy to think that you should sin more so that there's more grace? He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? We talked about this last week. Remember how Isaiah came into the presence of God and it just overcame him and it cleansed him? If you've been cleansed in the presence of the living God, sin is not an option. A life of sin is not an option. And this is why John wrote this letter. This is why we study the Bible. This is why God left us with the scriptures. They are to bring you and me into greater obedience to the Lord. They are there to serve, to make us obedient to God. Jesus prayed in John 17, 17 to the Father. He said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The things that you have said, the things that have been written, those things are true and they sanctify us. They make us holy. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Bible, the word of God, has an effect on us. It cuts through our excuses and the, the faces that we put on for people. We can even fool ourselves into thinking that the excuses we have are good enough or that the way we're acting around other people is who we really are. But the, you open up the word of God and it's so real and it's so raw that it cuts right through that and it exposes the thoughts and intentions of the heart, as the writer of Hebrews said. And once that happens, once you're open and laid bare before the Lord, the Holy Spirit comes in and says, now let's make a change. So John writes this letter, among other reasons, to keep us from sinning, that the word of God should keep you from sin. This is one of the reasons why reading the Bible, studying the Bible, memorizing the Bible, they're spiritual disciplines because we do them in order to prepare us for the hard times, to prepare us for when there's going to be a threat. We're strengthening ourselves for the battle. And he also recognizes, so he says, I say to you, write these things to you so that you may not sin. But he immediately recognized that, unfortunately, sin is sort of inevitable. <laughs> so he comforts us immediately, he says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So he's saying, you shouldn't sin. I'm writing this so that you don't sin. That's the goal, no sin. But if you do sin, we have Jesus on our side. The fearful thing about sin, why, I mean, sin wrecks our life. That's one thing. But let's leave that aside for a second. That sin incurs the wrath of God. When you sin, you are under the judgment of God. That's a fearful, terrible thing. It's a terrible thing, the word says, to fall into the hands of a living God. But now, he says, we have an advocate with the Father. This is a great word, and this is one of these first titles we're going to talk about uh, tonight of, of Jesus. The word for advocate in Greek is parakletos. You may have heard uh, it transliterated as paraclete before. Uh, it's a great word, and it, if you want to be literal, literally it means someone who is called to the side. So it doesn't mean that Jesus is called to your side. Literally, what it means is like somebody in court, like you're standing in court, and it's like, is there anybody who will stand in his defense? And somebody is called up to stand beside you on your behalf. So an advocate, a witness in court. And it, it's not so much like a lawyer 
if you look at the, the definition of this Greek word, it's not so much a lawyer, it's more like a character witness. Somebody who comes in to testify of who you really are before the court. That's who Jesus is. He's somebody who stands with you. Now, the name Satan means accuser, both in Hebrew and Greek. The name Satan means accuser. This is the one who comes before the Lord and accuses you. He calls upon God to execute his wrath on you immediately. He's saying, this person deserves to die now. You remember that scene from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where uh, the white witch comes up and she's telling uh, Aslan that that boy deserves to die and you know he deserves to die. She's not wrong. That's what's so chilling about that, that moment in the book or the movie if you don't read. <laughs> but that's what Satan does. He accuses. But Jesus is the advocate who speaks up on your behalf. I referenced this story last week but it's just too good to pass up. So if uh, we're going to go there again, if you can turn to Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Zechariah 3, 1 through 5. We see this in action. Zechariah writes, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. To accuse, that's what Satan does. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. You could read that. The Lord rebuke you, O accuser. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. This is a perfect picture of what John is talking about. Joshua the priest stands before the Lord. Satan comes in and accuses him. And Satan is right in his accusation in that, yes, Joshua, as he represented the people, uh, they were not deserving of God's mercy. They were deserving of judgment. But the advocate steps in. Now, the advocate didn't step in to say, no, no, he's innocent. He doesn't deserve this. He comes in to testify about the grace of God. He said, this is a brand plucked from the fire. It's like, this man deserves to burn. Yes, but this is a man that I have chosen to pull out of the fire. Isn't that something? There's no escape from the reality of your sin. Jesus doesn't stand before God and say, no, no, he's never sinned. He stands in and said, Father, this is one that we have plucked from the fire. He proclaims that your sin has already been covered by grace. That's what Jesus does. Satan steps in and accuses you. Jesus steps in and says, no, no, no. We've already taken care of this. It's pretty great. Paul writes in Romans 8, 33 through 34, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Paul is saying in this picture of a courtroom, Paul's like, who's going to come in and accuse you? God's the one that chose to save you and God's the one that's going to make the judgment. And Jesus is the one that already took the punishment and he's the one interceding for you. Jesus is interceding for you before God. Isn't that something? Every time you sin, Jesus stands up and says, Father, this one is covered by my blood. That's amazing. By the way, Romans 8.27 says that the Holy Spirit is also interceding for you. So you have the Holy Spirit within you interceding and Jesus in heaven interceding. And by the way, in John 14.16, Jesus called the Holy Spirit another parakletos, another advocate, another helper. So there, there's a... There's a cool comparison there. So take comfort when you sin. This is what John's saying. Don't sin, but when you do sin, remember that Jesus is in heaven and the Spirit is within you and they're taking up for you in that moment. When you feel accused or condemned in your mind, so when you sin and you just start feeling lower than low and you just feel like you don't deserve to live, you don't deserve to be saved, listen, that is not from God. I'm straight up telling you right now, that is not God who comes in and makes you feel dirty and rotten about yourself when you sin. 
Your price has already been paid. Accusation comes from the accuser. The one inside of you is not an accuser. He's your advocate. He's on your side. Oh, God is accusing me so much. No, God doesn't do that. God sent his son so that you wouldn't have to be accused anymore. You need to learn to separate in your mind. Sometimes we go, well, I know what God's voice sounds like. Not if you think that God would come and try and condemn you in your own heart. That's not what God does. That's what Satan does. And Satan is really, really good at using religious sounding language to make us feel like the cross isn't enough. But here's what the Bible says. Revelation 12, verses 10 through 11. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Isn't that something? This is how you know that the authority of Christ has come, that the kingdom of Christ has come, that the accuser has been cast down. God is like, look, we don't need you here anymore. Jesus Christ has overcome. And how do we overcome? By the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Your victory over sin is not going to come by you being perfect. Let me tell you that. Your victory over sin will not come by you being perfect. Because even if you were to live a perfect life for the rest of your life, you still don't merit salvation any more than you did before. It's the blood of Jesus. As it calls him here in John, 1 John chapter 2, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Because he is righteous and his blood has been shed, his righteousness comes to you. His blood and your testimony, that continuous, lifelong confession of faith in Jesus Christ, that is how you overcome accusation. Not by your perfection, but by trusting in what Jesus has done. Because Jesus does not accuse, he advocates for you. Can you grieve the Holy Spirit? Sure, but you know the difference between being grieved and feeling condemned. All right? Verse 2. So we looked at the first title of Jesus as the advocate, and now he's going to go right into the second one in verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So he calls him the propitiation. Another important word. This word in Greek is Hilasmas. This is a tricky word to translate precisely. There are a lot of words in Greek we're very sure what they mean. It's obvious. Others were like, I'm not quite sure how this is meant to be used. So I had a lot of fun. <laughs> Most people wouldn't have fun with this. I had a lot of fun tracking this down and, uh, and trying to get a little more insight on it. Uh, because traditionally it's rendered propitiation. Uh, some modern translations have it as sacrifice. Um, some high church traditions particularly have suggested expiation would be a good translation. And we'll, we'll talk about all those in just a second. But let's, let's go ahead and, and do a brief word study on what it means to be propitiation. The word hilasmas in Greek is used in the Old Testament to translate three different words. So the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew to Greek, translates the word kippur, selicha, and chata'at. Those are all Hebrew words, you can tell. They're not English. Translates all three of those words with the word hilasmas. Now, the word kippur means covering, right? So to cover something is, the, is that word. Selicha is the word forgiveness, plain and simple. And then chata'at is the word for sin offering. It's only used one time as the term for sin offering. So covering, forgiveness, and sin offering. The word covering is often translated atonement. The day of atonement, Yom, which means day, Yom Kippur is the day of atonement. Or in, uh, in Greek, it would be the day of Hilasmas. Very closely connected to the word Hilasterion. The word Hilasterion describes the mercy seat, which covers the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, it describes how uh, the blood of Jesus has covered it. But this is a different word. They're related. They're both talking about covering, right? But it's a different word. So you got these three different things, covering or atonement, forgiveness, and sin offering. And for all three of those different words, there's about three different ways that people want to translate it here. Um, now, the one chata'at is sin offering. It's used that way one time. So some people suggest that the best way to translate this word in John is to translate it as sacrifice or offering. 
Uh, so Jesus Christ is the offering, the sacrifice for our sins. That is true. Jesus is the sacrifice for our sins. Read the book of Hebrews if you're not sure about that. Uh, but I think it's also broader than that. I also think that there's only one case where it's translated that way. So uh, probably best to, to use maybe a broader term or something that is, uh, is, is different than that. So the two most common suggestions, number one is propitiation. And this is what most translations will have. Now, this is a word that we don't use very much, but remember, it's translating the word kippur, which means covering. So it can mean appeasing or covering over something. Think of when, uh, oh, when Noah was, was drunk and lying down in his tent and the, his sons came in and covered him over, right? That the Lord covers us. He covers our sins. So it describes God's wrath being satisfied and being turned away. God's wrath is being appeased. He's, he's passing over that sin and his wrath is being satisfied. Expiation is a little different. This word is closer to being cleansing or forgiveness. And this describes the removal of the cause of guilt in the first place. So expiation is about removing guilt at all. Like you are not guilty. You didn't do anything wrong. Propitiation is saying you are guilty, but my, my wrath has been satisfied. I'm going to cover it and pass over it like it, uh, like it never happened. Both of these things are biblical. There are passages that talk about both of these things. I prefer the word propitiation after my, uh, my fun little afternoon sojourn <laughs> through the Greek Septuagint, but because that's what the sacrifice did in the Old Testament. It didn't remove your guilt. Like you didn't, it wasn't that your sin was gone now that you uh, offered an animal or offered a sacrifice. It covered your, your sin. Uh, it, it temporarily stayed the wrath of God. So that's why I think this is the best way to translate hilasmos here as propitiation. It satisfied judgment against the guilt that you already have. If you want to understand propitiation, uh, think of the Passover where the lamb was slaughtered, the blood was put on the doors, and the angel of death passed by. Because there's already been death at this house is the idea. And I'm going to pass over. That's propitiation. And now that doesn't make God an ogre. Like God is just this evil, angry, green monster with a giant club that wants to slam people into the ground, you know. Because it was God's love that compelled him to do this in the first place. God poured out his wrath on his son so they didn't have to pour it out on you. So the idea isn't that we, we had to stop God, <laughs> It was that God knew the true just penalty for sin and he chose to act mercifully and just at the same time. Because Psalm 103 verses 11 through 12 tells us, As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's why the accuser has nothing on you. Because Jesus, who is our propitiation, testifies on your behalf every time. The book of Revelation describes Jesus in heaven as a lamb that was slain. There's that constant reminder that the wrath of God has been satisfied in Jesus Christ. The sacrifice has already been offered. There's nothing left to accuse you of because the penalty's been paid. And the end of verse 2 says, He's the propitiation not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, that could be a confusing phrase, but it really shouldn't be. Uh, he's not saying that everybody is saved because of what Jesus did. What he's saying is that everyone, everywhere, can receive the salvation of Jesus. No matter what ethnicity or background or anything else. Remember, this was a serious problem in the early church. Do, are the Gentiles saved or not? John is saying, he's our sacrifice for the whole world. The Jews could say, he's our Messiah. Like, yeah, but this is so much bigger than you. So one way you could put this is the death of Christ was sufficient to save everyone, but it is only efficient to save those who put their faith in him. If everybody in the whole world were to put their faith in Jesus, they would be saved. However, most will not. So it is only efficient to save those who put their faith in him. It's not teaching universalism. That's why John wrote earlier in John 3.16, For God so loved the world, who? The world, everyone, so that he gave his only son that the world should not perish, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So God made, opened the door for the whole world. Anybody can walk through it, but most won't. Do you see the difference? That's what he's talking about here. So what do we learn from this? If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he's covered you with his blood, and no one can bring any accusation against you. Despite your shortcomings, 
Yeah, you don't know what I've done. I don't need to know what you've done. I know what Jesus has done, and that's enough. Which means you can let go of your shame and your guilt. I can't just let it go. Then I'm, I'm just, I'm being flippant with it. No, you're not. You're suffering inside. The Lord doesn't want you to be that way. He wants you to walk in the freedom. Paul would write in, in Romans, he said, it's no longer I who sin, it's sin that dwells in me. Like, how can you say that, Paul? Like, because I know what Jesus did. I've been regenerated by the Son of God. So, there you go. Nobody can bring any accusation against you except the propitiation of Jesus Christ. Verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So he's going to return to what he was saying before and describe the kind of person who knows God and the person who doesn't. He's going to do this several times even uh, before we're done tonight. You know, because salvation is invisible, like there's no mark that appears on your forehead or like, you know, some tattoo that appears on you somewhere. Sometimes we wonder and we fret and we like, do I really know God? Like I, I've prayed the prayer and I go to church, but do I really know God? And in your darker moments, you just start to question and you kind of like pray the sinner's prayer again just to be sure. <laughs> you know, well, God has given us markers of our salvation. He's giving us a way of knowing if we're saved or not. And those are the good works that we do in obedience to his commandments. He says those who keep his commandments. This is a fun one. The word for keep is tereo. And it's, it's usually used of watchmen or guards in like a prison or something like that. So it means to guard or keep, to keep a close eye on God's commandments in our lives, to kind of march past the cell and make sure that that obedience is not going anywhere. It's not sneaking out. It's not slipping out the back door. We're never forgetting it. Because Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You know, it's really unfortunate, and I know why we do, but it's unfortunate that we focus so much on works as a negative thing. You know, that we're not saved by works, and we, we drill that into the ground so hard that we miss the importance of works. Your works are evidence of your salvation. How do I know I'm saved? Well, look at your life. Is there good works going on in your life? Repeatedly, the Bible uses the metaphor of a fruit tree to describe good works. Fruit grows naturally. That's how you know that a tree is a fruit tree. How do you know that this tree is an apple tree? Because it's got apples on it. How do you know this tree is a banana tree? It's got bananas growing on it. It doesn't have any fruit on it. How are you supposed to know? You can talk about it. You can research it, but you'll never know for sure until the fruit comes out. Jesus wrote in John 15 verses 5 through 6, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Fruit. The fruit of righteousness. John the Baptist told the Pharisees that came to be baptized, he said, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Go prove to me that you've repented. John was an intense guy. <laughs> John the Baptist, of course. If you are truly in Christ, the, the, the change is going to come. If you are truly an apple tree, the apples are going to come. <laughs> and when your conscience is activated and you start noticing that you're not doing what you're supposed to do, when you start taking steps and, and putting forth an effort to try and bear fruit, then you can rejoice because that's the beginnings of the fruit that's going to be born in your life. When people first get saved, one of the first things that you see is that their conscience is activated. You know, the amount of people I've seen who just stopped cussing overnight or stopped doing drugs immediately or stopped sleeping around or looking at porn or whatever it is. It just happens. Why? Because their conscience is activated and all of a sudden they're like, I shouldn't be doing this. That's the fruit of righteousness. You might not have done anything positive yet, but you're already starting to get pruned and the Lord is lopping off the, the bad wood so that you can start to grow good fruit. You know, sometimes you've got to lop a tree way down to the trunk before you can get anything good to come out of it. But eventually the fruit will start to come. We're not saved because of our works. We do good works because we're saved. An apple tree isn't an apple tree because it has apples on it. It makes apples because it's an apple tree. 
So when you see good works in your life, when you see faithfulness, when you see obedience, when you see that you're slowly letting go of things that you shouldn't be holding on to, when you see that you're loving people, when you're praying to the Lord, those are good signs. They should be a source of comfort for you. It's so funny. I've been in times of prayer where I, on my own, with nobody telling me to, I'm a grown man now, where I go into my room and just pray. And then I'm in there praying like, oh, Lord, am I really following you? And sometimes the Lord goes, you're in your room on your own praying. People don't do that who aren't saved. Like people don't just do things like this. So it's a comfort. Salvation liberates us to, to do well and to try and to struggle without fear of retribution. When you're afraid, it's hard to do well. Like you can do something at home a million times, but as soon as somebody's watching, you can't do it. Like if you're really good at drawing and you can draw anything you want when nobody's looking, but then somebody's looking over your shoulder, all of a sudden you just can't do it. Or if you shot, you know, shoot 100 free throws in the row, backyard and you say mom come out and watch this and you airball the first one right it's hard when you're under pressure and that's kind of what sin is like when you are afraid that you're going to get blasted out of existence or you're just living with your own guilt it's hard to live righteously because you're just so tensed all the time it's easy for temptation to come in what salvation does is it removes the fear of retribution instead it gives you joy and confidence in christ so that you can start taking steps without fear you might feel like, I don't know if there's any fruit in my life. Well, first thing, just keep going. Just keep going. We were talking over here before church started at night. The hardest thing about learning to do something well is you've got to be really bad at it for a while. And that goes for walking with Jesus too. I'm going to pray for two hours a day. Yeah, how'd that go? <laughs> don't, don't start with two hours a day. Start with five minutes. Well, that's so easy. Okay, good. Do five minutes a day for two weeks in a row. Okay, all of a sudden, this is a little more complicated. Five minutes a day for two weeks in a row. Maybe expand it after that. Go a little farther, right? You don't start lifting the heaviest weights in the gym because then you're going to pass out. You're going to hurt yourself. You start with the smaller ones. So, oh, I'm not doing what Billy Graham did. Well, so what? You just do what God has for you. And two, if you feel like there's no fruit in your life, find somebody who knows you really, really well and can look at your life with an unbiased eye. I mean, you might be accused in your own heart. You might be deceived into thinking that I don't have any fruit. But you, as soon as you tell somebody like, do you see any fruit of righteousness in my life? And they're going to laugh and go, of course I do. You're doing this, 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 and this. I guess that's true. Yeah, what, that's a weird question. That's why we have church, by the way, so that we can be around each other and do those things. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 9 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. How many of you guys started playing an instrument when you were really, really young and then stopped? <laughs> yeah, most of you. Yeah. So you start playing piano or guitar or violin or whatever it is and it's hard and it's boring and you don't like it and you're not any good, so you quit. And then there's those poor suckers stuck in violin class or the guy stuck playing scales while you're out having a good time. Then all of a sudden, it's senior year of high school and all of a sudden they're interesting because they can do this thing really well. They can play. <laughs> they can play really well. They've been sitting at their home doing nothing and you've been making fun of them, but now they can shred on that guitar. When you sow and you sow and you sow, eventually you're going to reap. If you keep going, eventually something's going to happen. And this applies to the Spirit as well. You can't read your Bible every day for a significant amount of time and not be changed by it. You will learn it. You can't pray every day a significant amount of time and not learn the voice of God. It will happen because you're planting seeds and you're watering seeds and you're fertilizing seeds and you're taking care of the little sprouts. Fruit is going to come if you do these things. And for no other reason, God deserves our obedience out of gratitude, out of love for what he did at the cross. So don't think about, I've got to get a, a good pile of fruit in my life. It's like, God, I just love you and I just want to do what you, you want because you deserve it. Love that verse. If we keep his commandments, we know that we have come to know him. It's a reassuring. Are you doing the right stuff? Yeah. Well, not all of it, but are you doing some? Yeah. Well, there you go. Just keep trying. Now, in the next verse, he's going to give the the inverse of that 
Those who claim to know God but live disobedient lives. And he says these people are liars. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Uh, there's really not much more to say here that we didn't say last time. Um, I mean, the question is, how can you be freed from slavery and yet you stay on the job? You know, people say, I'm free to do whatever I want. Yeah, but if you free a slave who's on a, like being taken on a caravan to where they're going to work, be worked to death the rest of their life, the slave's going to run away. Like if you go down into the mines and you cut the slave's chains free, they're going to run out. They're not going to keep working. It's like, come on, you're free. Yes, I am free. And this is what I choose to do with my freedom. Well, then you're not really free, are you? That doesn't make any sense. That example makes no sense at all. And it doesn't make any sense for you to say that you're free in Jesus, yet you continue in sin. So don't look up to Christians who are going to live lives of disobedience to the Lord and try to perpetuate that lifestyle because God told them that it's okay. There's lots of different things like, you know, I just prayed and this is the conclusion that I came to. You know, uh, the classic example here is, of course, of homosexuality, where I just prayed for years and God finally brought me to the place where I know that I'm gay and this is how God wants me to be. And I know God. God and me have an understanding. There's an implication there that they have a special relationship with God. But what John is saying, if you're not keeping his commandments, the truth is not in you. You don't know him. He's going to come back to this point. It's because people don't know God at all that they want to get other Christians to join them in their sin. Instead, verse 5, it's the one who keeps a close guard on God's word, that same word, tereo, who are accepted. He says, whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. Keeps God's word. Again, the priority of the written word of God. Read it, learn it, study it, meditate on it. And I think here that example of a prison guard works really, really well. It's, you know, knowledge leaks if you don't use it. Maybe when you grew up, you knew Bible verses, you knew the stories, you knew theology, you knew about God, you, all this stuff. And you just haven't returned to that well in a long time. You haven't guarded the cell. And meanwhile, while you weren't looking, it escaped and you don't have it anymore. Or maybe you had the discipline to pray, you had the discipline to read, and now you tried it and like, man, I used to be able to do this easy. What happened? Don't lose that. Keep the word of God. Don't lose it. And he says, by this, the love of God is perfected. So there's some ambiguity in the text here. The love of God. The question is, is that God's love for us or our love for him? Uh, it's really hard to determine this based on just what the language says. So a lot of times, if that's the case, maybe there was intended to be a double meaning. So it, it means, number one, either God's love, that the love of God that led him to send his son is completed by the fruitful life of a saved disciple. Or two, it's our love and that an honest person who loves God and desires to please him, that's the perfection of love, the completion of love when you start bearing fruit for him. I give a slight edge to the first option. I think this is talking about God's love for us. Um, but honestly, God initiates love and then our love meets his and it together produces the fruit of righteousness. So I wouldn't divide it too closely. Jesus said in John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. So you see how our love for God and God's love for us are together when we keep his word. So slight edge to the love of God, but both of them could be true. And now this word for perfected, the love of God is perfected, comes from the Greek word telos. You may have heard that word telos before, meaning an, an end or a goal or a purpose. So if something is being perfected, it's being brought to completion. It's being, it's coming to the end. It's, it's achieving its purpose. So the love of God is achieving its purpose. Why did God send his son? To save us, but also more than just to save us from, from sin, but to produce men and women who are full of good works, to go not just save us from the negative, but to push us into the positive. It's great to get all your student loans paid off, but now you're at zero. You got to make money at some point if you want to actually move forward. It's like God forgave all your debt, but now he wants to give you all the riches of his glory. To produce men and women who have obedient love, true disciples in the image of Jesus Christ. Titus chapter 2 verse 14, it says this, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is a great reference here to... Uh, some theology from the Old Testament, how uh, each nation 
was considered to, to be the inheritance of principalities and powers. This is when Daniel talks about the prince of Persia or the prince of Greece. Uh, but Israel, of course, was God's special chosen possession. That's when he says, you are my inheritance. That's the idea there. Now, in Titus, he's saying, the Lord has been working and sent Jesus to purify for himself a people for his own possession. He's trying to create from all nations a people who are zealous for good works. So what does this mean? God's great plan of love from beginning of, of time is completed when you and I start to walk in obedience to the Lord Jesus. How awesome is that? That the, the goal of God's plan was eternity with him, but on this earth was to have people who are zealous for good works, people who are living out God's plan and God's commandments. So when you and I start to walk in that, we are seeing the completion and the perfection of God's love. So awesome. And he says, by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So again, talking about how we can know that we belong here. Focusing again on practical obedience to Jesus. And he talks about those who claim to abide in, Greek, in Christ. Uh, the Greek word for abide is meno. It's not a complicated word. We really can overcomplicate abiding in Christ. The word just means to stay or remain. Like a vine abides in the branch. The vine isn't doing anything. As long as it stays hooked onto the branch, there's going to be fruit. So that's what Jesus is saying. Just stay with me. Remain with me. Abide in me. And he says, those who say they abide in him. So if you want to abide in Christ, he says, you ought to walk. That word ought, afele, this is literally you are obligated to. You are bound to do this. To do what? To walk as he walked, to walk after Jesus. What's a very simple definition of abiding in Christ? Following the example of Jesus. What does abiding mean? Living like Jesus. John 13, 15, Jesus said, I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. This connects what we said before, right? That the plan of God from before the beginning of time was to create a people zealous for good works. Let's say it another way. God's plan from before the beginning was to duplicate Jesus in the world. Now, Jesus is the only begotten son of God, but we are the adopted sons and daughters of God. We are in Christ. At the end of John, it says that we are commissioned. We are sent just as he was sent. You are given the same spirit of Jesus. You are given the righteousness of Jesus. Why? So that you can multiply the ministry of Jesus on the earth. Jesus was one man. He was the greatest of men, but he was one man. And he had one life. And he was only alive for a few years. So God chose to use that life in order to multiply that life millions of times over. This is why we study the life of Jesus. This is why we obey his words. So that you can go out into whatever sphere you live in, whatever school you go to, whatever family you're a part of, whatever job you're in or neighborhood you live in, that you go and be Jesus there. You are not Christ, but you have the spirit of Christ and the righteousness of Christ. You know that phrase, what would Jesus do? It's, it's, it's a cliche, but it's also how we're to live. Every minute of every day in the example of Jesus Christ. And don't say to yourself, well, Jesus was God and I'm not, so I can't live like Jesus. Jesus lived fully as a man. He was 100% man. And he did everything that he did by the spirit of God. You ever notice Jesus didn't do anything until he was baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's when he began his ministry. That's when he began to do miracles. That's when he began to preach. And you and I... When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we are capable of doing the same things Jesus did. And I'm not making that up. This is probably my favorite passage in the whole Bible. John 14, verses 12 through 17. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus writes, whoever believes in me. He's not talking about the apostles here. He said, whoever believes in me. Raise your hand if you believe in Jesus. Okay, so this is about you. Put your name in there. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That's, I'm going to keep reading, but I'm going to pause there. That's unreal. He says, you will do greater works than I do. And we can try and spiritualize that and say, well, Jesus, 
you know, never led a, a whole city to Christ or Jesus never saw anybody really come to salvation. So we can do more than that. That's not what he's talking about. This whole section in John uh, 13 through 17, he keeps referring to the works that he did as the miraculous signs that he performed, the ministry that he did. He's all inclusive with his ministry. So does it include salvation? Yes, but it's bigger than that. Jesus walked on water. He raised the dead. He opened the eyes of the blind. He confronted the religious leaders. He commissioned more people to go out and do that. He, he talked with those who were hurting. Jesus said, you're going to do those things and greater than those things. And he continues, says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper, another parakletos, to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, since it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So how are we supposed to do the greater works than even Jesus did? Because the Holy Spirit is in you. Not only does Jesus give you access to the Father to receive whatever you want in prayer, he gives you the Holy Spirit to go out and do the same things he did. That's exactly what happened in the book of Acts. They went out and it was like little mini Jesuses around the world, little Christians going throughout the world, doing what Jesus would do if he was there. That's your life. You are to do what Jesus would do if he was in your situation. Is that possible? Not only is it possible, it's wide open. Because the propitiation that has been given to you, combined with the advocacy of Jesus and the Spirit before the Father, you've got the whole Trinity on your team, man. There's nothing that you can't do for him. He has opened up the possibility of amazing things, amazing works of righteousness by your hand. So don't sell yourself so short. I'm not that great. You're right, you're not that great. But you know who is? The Spirit who dwells in you. And the Lord is like, look, I got works for you to do, Ephesians chapter 2. I got stuff planned. I got things I want to do, and I want to use you to do it. So this is why I'm like, Let, let's, you know, walk as Jesus walked. Oh, it's so hard. No, that's not hard. That's exciting. That's awesome. We get to walk like Jesus walked? I can't. You're right, you can't. That's why he gave you his spirit. So walk in the Spirit, walk as Jesus walked, and you won't believe the things that God will do in your life. I mm, love that passage. But let's get back to 1 John <laughs> chapter 2, verses 7 through 8. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. This is our first use of the term beloved in the book of 1 John. Uh, he's going to use it five more times in this book. He uses it four times in the book of 3 John. This obviously is not talking about beloved in a romantic sense. This is beloved as in I, I love all you guys or all y'all because all the apostles were Southern. Um, <laughs> Hey, I'm not making that up. They recognized Peter in uh, the, the priest's house because he had a Galilean accent. He had a rustic rural accent, and that's how they knew who Jesus and his followers were. So they, they had a twang, and that's how they knew. So I'm not making that up. <laughs> anyway, that was a little bit of a rabbit trail, but it's okay. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment. He's talking about a commandment that he's given. And he's referring to what he's been saying about consistency. This whole first and chapter and a half have been about living consistently as a Christian, consistently in your declaration of faith. And he's also going to start to pivot here to talking about love. And he will talk a lot about love in this letter. <laughs> so if that's something you're interested in talking about, just stick around. We will get to it. Now, he says that what he's just said about being consistent in your walk with the Lord is not a new commandment, but it's an old commandment. In fact, that has been from the beginning. It's familiar. It's the word that you have heard. So not only is it ancient from the beginning, it's the word that you have heard. The idea being is this has been God's plan from day one, and it's the only thing that you have learned as a Christian. So basically he's saying, I'm not making this up. I'm not making up some new thing. I'm giving you the same gospel that you heard from day one. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 5 through 6, the Lord said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So what has he been teaching? He's been teaching that love should lead to obedience. And that's not a new commandment. Moses was writing it in Deuteronomy 6, that love leads to obedience. But John emphasizes in verse 8, he said, At the same time, it is a new commandment. 
He's emphasizing that it's new in the way that it's lived out now. So it's an old commandment, but it's been renewed, right? It's been uh, uh, updated, you could say. And the difference is what? That the darkness is passing away. That word is paragatai, which means to walk or to stroll by something. It's like the, the darkness is here, but it's on the move now. It's walking by. It's here, but it's not going to be here long. And the true light is already shining. What's the point? At the cross, there was a fundamental shift in the spiritual world. Everything changed. No longer are Satan and his hordes holding us captive. Jesus has been victorious at the cross. Now, the darkness is still here, but it's on its way out. The sun is rising. No pun intended. Right? The light is starting to shine. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, he says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Everybody wants their student loans forgiven. How about getting your, your debt of sin forgiven? That's what happened at the cross. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame. Rulers and authorities, he's talking about uh, demonic rulers and authorities, by triumphing over them in him. Satan's only power is to accuse and to tempt. So he can accuse people before the Lord. He can tempt them to sin. He can't make you sin. He, in, in some ways, he can harass your body. He can make life miserable for you. He can speak to your mind, and if you're not careful, you'll listen to it. But you know what? Now, the, the power of accusation is gone because Jesus has already covered our sins, and the gospel is going out and plundering people, getting them delivered from the armies of Satan. So he's on his way out. His kingdom is falling, there are people who are still trapped under the influence of the devil and, and his, his armies, but you know what? They're weak now. The, the source of their power, sin and death, has been broken. So we get to go out and liberate people and free captives because Jesus has come. So now this commandment to obey out of love, which has always been valid, it takes on new incredible meaning because of Jesus. Love God. Okay, that's, that's a hard commandment, especially if you're afraid that God is going to judge you from your sins. Now that God has come down and, and paid for your sin himself, it, it's like, what else are you going to do than love God? And obedience springs out of that. So you see, John loves to write in opposites here, light and darkness, uh, death and life. He saw, he saw the world as a great struggle that between light and darkness, between God and Satan. I want to encourage you guys to view your life that way a little bit. That life is a cosmic struggle between light and darkness. And that you are a soldier of the light. You are a conqueror in Christ Jesus. And your job is to go out and set people free. Because Jesus has already set them free. So you get to go proclaim the good news. And God gets to use you to make real what he's already declared in heaven. How awesome is that? You know, live your life like it's a battle. Don't just rest on your laurels and expect that everything is just going to happen. God wants to use you, and he can do greater things through you than even Jesus did. Verse 9, whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So again, he's picking up that same way of speaking of someone who says that they're with the Lord, but this is how they live. And then he contrasts it with somebody who is really with the Lord. So now he's starting to focus more on love to the brothers. And he's going to use that a lot here. Uh, he, it, for John, the primary expression of obedience to Christ was loving other people. The primary way that you know that you love Jesus is if you love other people. Isn't that something? We probably wouldn't pick that one if we had to pick one thing. Going to church, reading your Bible, praying. What about loving other people? Especially loving the brothers, loving those who are in the church with you. He says, if you don't do that, you're in darkness. You're, you don't know where you're going. You're blind. Why is he saying that? Because he's trying to show how absurd it is to say that I, my life is a life of obedience out of love to God. And you hate people. 
Everything that God has done for us is done out of love. We obey Christ out of love. How then are we going to act otherwise to each other? Because we are brothers, especially as Christians. We are brothers and sisters to one another, regardless of our differences. Hit on this a little bit last week. We're going to take a little more time this week. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He's talking about there was a wall. What was that wall? It was hostility. There was hatred. There was no peace. Where are we going to find peace? Jesus is our peace. He breaks down the hostility, and he takes two people, not two individuals, although it can be applied that way, two people groups and brings them together into one. Now in that passage, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles, but you pick any group of people that hate each other. Race does not matter at the cross. Nationality does not matter at the cross. Past injustice, prejudice, these things don't matter at the cross. And you need to always be working to get over those things because we can be very, very good at rebuilding that wall of hostility. Now, this is a huge point for some people where they stumble over this, where prejudice and hate exist. It, it can keep us from walking out our salvation. And we need to see how real that, that sin is here. He's saying, if you hate your brother, you hate somebody that Christ has brought into your family, if you say that our differences physically are more important than our differences spiritually, he says, you're walking in darkness. That's not good. Verse 10, he says, those who walk in light have no scandalon in them, no point of stumbling. There's no, you're not going to disrupt anybody else because prejudice and hatred, it, it's, a, it's a stumbling block. What do we mean by a stumbling block? It's, it's, it, it's a disruptor of faith. A stumbling block is not just being offended by something. <laughs> stumbling block is what you have done has caused me to sin. Or has caused me to walk away from the Lord. The word is scandalon, which is where we get our word for scandal, obviously. So how do we work this out? You can't control other people. You can't. But you can control you. So there's two ways that we, we look at this here. Number one, don't hate somebody for a human reason. I hate you because your skin is this color. I hate you because you come from this country. I hate you because you have this political ideology. I hate you because your grandfather did this to my grandfather. Whatever it is. I hate you because you're a Jew and I'm a Gentile. I hate you because you're Indian and I'm American. I hate you. Whatever. Pick your, your hostility. There's plenty to go around. Whatever it is. When you hate somebody for a human reason, you will cause that person to hate Christ. That's why it's a stumbling block. Look at these Christians. Only Christians I ever knew hated me. You know the, the famous story of uh, Gandhi. I believe he was in, uh, it, it may have been in India, but for some reason I want to say that it happened in Africa. He traveled. But when he was a young man, he wanted to go into a Christian church on a Sunday morning. And the man turned him away at the door because he said, only whites can come into this place. And from that day forward, Gandhi had a hatred for Christians. He even had that famous quote. He said, I love Christianity. I love Jesus. I hate Christians. Now, that does not excuse his rebellion. But those people, that guy at that door, man, he was a stumbling block. This guy was ready to come into the, the house of God and he was tripped up by somebody who didn't want him there because he didn't like the way he looked. That's what can be a stumbling block. It also can be when you project hatred onto somebody else. You don't hate them, but you, you treat them as if they hated you. That's not good. You can... All, you can do the same thing to people when you, you always are assuming that they've got some ulterior motive in their heart. You're always assuming that they want to put you down, that they hate you, that they don't like you. And maybe there's historical reasons for that or whatever. But you can stumble people there too. You can say, What's, well, I'm trying so hard. I've talked to people like this. I'm trying so hard to love these people. And I really do. But I feel like whatever I do, I'm just boxed into this corner. And you can start to get people to resent the Lord. 
Now, you might think you've got it all together, but if you are walking in hate towards somebody, you're blind. He says, you're blind and you have no idea where you're going. I'm walking towards Jesus. You know blind spots in your car? Those are the most dangerous spots. Where you're blind, that's where you've got to check. That's where something's going to sneak up and you're not going to notice it. So you can have blind spots in your life where you think everything's great, but you got something coming on. It's going to crash right into you and you can't see it because of the hatred in your life. So we need to, to work on this in our own hearts. And the problem is, and I'm only going to mention this briefly, there are people who have a vested interest in pitting different groups against each other. That they make their money or they've got so much bitterness in their heart that they work to get different groups mad at each other. And if they run out of groups, they invent new ones. You got to watch out for people like that. As Christians, we don't succumb to that. We have the antidote to that. And we are to be a living demonstration of love for the brethren and showing that the love of Jesus is much more important than anything else. doesn't matter if he's a Palestinian and he's a Jew or he's an Arab and he's a Jew or, you know, he's a, I pick your, your group that hates each other. doesn't matter if he's Armenian and he's a Turk. doesn't matter. Colossians chapter 3 verses 11 through 14 says, Here... There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. Bearing means putting up with one another. These people drive me nuts. He says, put up with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against each another, forgiving each other. Do you notice that? It says, if you have a complaint against somebody, he doesn't say, get that complaint resolved. He says, forgive them. Get over your complaint so that we can walk in love with each other. Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. I mean, there are people, especially that have come into our country and they have been driven out of where they lived. You know, some of you are even our grandparents or, or ancestors, I guess you could say. That's what happened. And there's deep-seated hatred for those people who uh, did things to them. And maybe it's, it's even legitimately, legitimate anger. But we need to forgive because forgiveness, unforgiveness is a, is a root and it will grow and it will choke out your faith. And he says in Colossians, ending that passage, above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Just love each other. Just love people. If you have prejudice in your heart or resentment, maybe you don't hate them necessarily, but you just can't let go of what was done to you. You need to view that as a sin and handle it. Let's just get along and follow Jesus. There's no time to squabble about stuff like that. People are dying and going to hell. We got to get out there, make this right, and get back to the business of the gospel. We're going to talk a lot more about love through the book of 1 John, but for now, just connect it to what we already learned. If God has loved us, we ought to love each other. So we'll end here with verses 12 through 14. He says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So this is John's longest description of why he's writing. It's in a poetic format, and it communicates a really important truth, and we're just going to go over it briefly. Um, there's two stanzas here of three lines each, and there is a distinct pattern to follow. So you've got one, two, three, break, one, two, three. And they, every line starts like this. It has a phrase that says, I write or am writing to you because. So uh, the first three lines are in the present tense, I am writing. The next three lines are in the aorist, sort of like the past tense, I write to you at the beginning of each line. And then he has an identifier. So three groups of people, children, old men, and young men. If you're interested, he uses two different words for children here. That's why your Bible might say little children and then just children. Uh, the first one is technia. The second one is paideia. That's where we get our word for pediatric from. And then there's the reason. I, am write, I write or I'm writing to you blank, and here's why. And 
It's the same for the old man each time, and the last line triples up that part. So that's the structure of this thing here. It's interesting to note, by the way, really quickly, he writes specifically to fathers and to young men. These are very distinctly masculine words. He doesn't mention women here, except as they are included in the terms children. Uh, it's worth noting. Um, it's very easy for us to get in the habit of neutralizing the gender language in Bible. Don't do that. Um, it's probably just like in, in Spanish or uh, Russian or any other number of languages where the default word is masculine. The default gender, I should say, is masculine. Um, this obviously is not a slam against the women in the church, but he's writing to the men. That's how he structures this. But it obviously will apply uh, to, to women as well. Just an interesting note to point out. All of these things I write to you because... All of these things are affirming realities about the people he writes to. Your sins are forgiven. You know him. You have overcome. Up to now, he's been writing over and over again. You're probably sick of it. About those who claim to be believers and are not. And it's easy to start to get nervous. Like, am I, do I belong in this category? Am I one of these people? But now he's writing in, a, in this big, grand, poetic fashion to affirm the readers in their faith. If you are walking with Jesus, you do not need to be afraid of the warnings that John gives here. They're meant to be a point of encouragement, not judgment. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There was nothing you could do to earn your salvation, and it's still true today. It is a settled reality. Your salvation is a real thing that will not change and it will manifest itself in your life more and more every day if you let it. Don't feel like you have to keep coming back to a fresh start with God. Okay, God, we're going to start over. Again? How old are you now? You should have been past this. Don't let the accuser get to you. And he's going to whisper in your ear that, yeah, you hate your brother. Or you don't really keep the word of God. Don't, don't listen to him. Listen to the voice of God. Put your faith in your propitiation and your advocate, Jesus Christ. And hear these words from John because he's talking about you. You are strong. The word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. If you have not come to Jesus in your life, you need to. But if you have, then maybe you need to pray these things about yourself. Go home and say, Lord, I thank you that I am strong. I thank you that the word of God abides in me. I thank you that I have overcome the evil one. And, you know, those are the kind of prayers that get really hard to say and they kind of stick in your throat. But it's like, look, God said it, not you. So just speak it out in faith. Because we've been liberated from the bondage of sin. And we have the privilege to live out the example of Christ. Man, who knows what miraculous things the Lord has in store for us if we will just walk in them. So God wants to perfect the love of God in your life. He wants to see in you the completion of why he sent his son in the first place. And it's available for you in Jesus' name.